Our second reading of scripture comes to us from um, Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. We'll be reading verses 7 through um, 18. Listen for God's word to you. The old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ." Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mentioned earlier that we were going to talk today about the transfiguration. Our um, uh, uh, lesson today does not... um, tell us about it, however, or it certainly doesn't tell us directly. Usually, in in my experience, when um, I I have uh, uh, been the pastor in charge of a church uh, uh, celebrating the the transfiguration, I've stuck with the gospel accounts. There are three biographies um, of Jesus that specifically tell us what happened in the the, um, transfiguration, and um, usually I have found that those are, those have plenty to say. So the, the story of the transfiguration, you may remember, is a story where Jesus takes three of his disciples up onto a mountain, and uh, while they are up there, his clothes become dazzling white, and he is transfigured, and again, as I mentioned to the children, we don't know what that means. It simply means he changed his appearance somehow. Um, so he is transfigured before them, and then Moses and Elijah, these two grand figures from the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, appear, and they begin conversing with him. And then the, uh, a cloud surrounds them, and a voice comes from the cloud that says, This is my son, um, listen to him. So uh, that's found in three of the four biographies of Jesus. John doesn't tell us about it, but we heard in... Um, the, the letter that John wrote, First John, he mentions how we will someday become like him. So maybe that's a reference to that too. So, so this appears in the in the the gospels, the the biographies of Jesus. But there's no explanation. There's just kind of you know we can imagine the disciples coming back down the the hill saying, "Well, that happened." 
um, but not actually having any clear understanding of what what its significance was. To to get at the significance of this um, of this, we have to look at other places in Scripture because nothing in in the Gospel tells us what it means. So what I'm going to try to do today is is tease out some of the significance of the Transfiguration by looking at this other passage um, that we heard. Um, sometimes people look at the uh, end of the biographies. They look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus because we see there that um, that Jesus was somehow different and yet somehow the same. People had trouble recognizing him. When, when he appeared in the garden to Mary, uh, she thought he was the gardener. So there's some indications in other places in Scripture that perhaps... Um, uh, they may they may shed light on what this transfiguration meant, um, but there are also passages in the letters, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at one of these letters where Paul is talking to the church, and I think what what if if this letter is what I think it is, if this letter um, has in mind the transfiguration, then I think it is um, helpful to us because it tells us not just what Jesus looks like, but actually who Jesus is. It doesn't simply say what his outward appearance is, but what his life is like. That the, the transfiguration was deeper than just his outward appearance, that, that the transfiguration revealed who he really is. And that's important to us because that is the life that Jesus offers to us. That is the life of eternity. It's what we talk about here a lot. We talk about the life of the kingdom or eternal life. So um, that's what I think that this passage is telling us. And um, but it doesn't say directly um, that it's about the transfiguration. Instead, um, Paul talks about a different mountaintop experience. Why does he do that? I think the reason he does that is because as Paul was traveling around different communities all around the Mediterranean world, he would have encountered people who knew the story of Moses and didn't know the story of Jesus. That That's the reason he was going from town to town, is to tell them the story of Jesus. So he was telling them about Jesus in light of something they already knew. He told them about a different mountaintop where Moses went up to receive the law. So he's using this familiar story to talk about something else. The other thing that's interesting about the passage we're going to look at is that Paul is defending his ministry. That Paul begins in a very defensive note and he's explaining that he gets his ministry from God. That what he's saying is, uh, people have told me that I'm no Moses. And he says, you are right. I am no Moses. He says, in, in so many different ways, I am a lesser um, uh, a minister of God than Moses was. But the point he's making is that that really doesn't matter because the ministry he has is greater. He says, the ministry of the gospel is far superior to the ministry that Moses had. The ministry Moses has had was to be the lawgiver, to bring the law down from, from Mount Sinai. And he says the gospel is so much greater that even somebody like him, later on in this letter he calls himself an earthen vessel. He says that he is this, he is this uh, a clay pot that, that um, you know, easily broken, um, you know, cracked and glued together. He says even, even him, uh, in, in all of his weakness and frailty, is is better than Moses in that he is bringing this greater message. So he's he's writing on this defensive note, and he says that the the gospel is superior to the law. So um, so he says um, he tells the story about Moses coming down uh, from Mount Sinai. We heard this um, that people 
um, people looked at Moses and they saw his, his face glowing. And Paul says, I'm not like that. He says, our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant, which is a superior ministry. So Paul says that my ministry is superior. It's not that I'm superior. It's that my ministry is superior. So how is it superior? He says, this is a covenant, not of written laws, but of the spirit. He says, it's different from Moses, um, covenant. He says the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. And again, he says the old way with laws etched in stone led to death. And he says, was it just that it was a bad, a bad covenant? And he says, no, it was a great covenant. It was an awesome covenant. He says it began with such glory. The people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. So what made it glorious? What was so glorious about the law? How many of you have flipped through the, the book of Leviticus and said, ooh, all right, this is glorious, right? So, so my guess is that was probably not your first reaction. So, so what was glorious about the Old Testament law? Well, uh, there, there's a bunch of things. So, so Paul, Paul is assuming that people would understand these. But the first one is that God gave them a law. That God wanted them to know a moral code. That, that like every religion, there is a moral code, an ethical framework of some kind that says, says how you, how you make the God or, or the gods happy. How you, how you, uh, exist on, on good terms with the supernatural forces in your world. What do you have to do to do that? But also, what do you have to do personally in order to have a good life? Whatever, whatever good life may be. Um, in the, in the ancient world, one of the, one of the prevailing mindsets was, was a, a philosophy called Epicureanism. And the idea there is the gods are far away and they really don't care. And, and so you do what you can to have as much, uh, pleasure in your life as possible. So that's the, uh, so that was, that was one of the philosophies. And Paul says that like, like Epicureanism, um, Christianity, uh, and Judaism before it have a moral framework. That there's this idea of there are things you do in order to make the gods happy. In the case of Epicureans, they said, well, you don't have to do much because the gods couldn't care less. And Paul says, no, one of the things that makes the Old Testament law Glorious is that God cared enough to provide um, not just any old set of laws, but the best set of laws. So, so God actually cared about His people. So, what else makes it glorious? Well, the fact that God was involved, that God actually stooped down to give them the law, and then if, to to a Jew in the first century, that would have conjured up all the images associated with Exodus. When 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 it says Moses went up on the mountain. Uh, um, and, and spoke to God, they're thinking about the, the light show. There's, there's thunder and, and fire and smoke, uh, that are described as part of that passage. All the things that God is doing, but not just the immediate event, but also the surrounding context because God has, God has led them out of slavery. For two centuries, they have been victims of, uh, for several centuries, they've been victims of slavery in Egypt and God has intervened in their lives to actually rescue them from that. So he says, God, um, is not merely giving giving them a code to live by, but God is actually active in their lives. So that's another way it's glorious. And then uh, it's it's glorious um, because it is a good law. That that the things that are in the law are good in and of themselves. That you compare them to other other laws that Paul and other people in the first century would have been familiar with. He says these are good laws. And we know some of them. Uh, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. There are 613. Um, uh, instructions in the in the Old Testament law, but uh, they're summarized in the Ten Commandments. So, if you think of a commandment that says says, "You shall have no other god before me," 
the idea there is a good idea. It's the idea that there should be an ultimate in your life and it should not be any created thing. That if you put a created thing as the ultimate in your life, then you're going to be disappointed or maybe you're going to be uh, making life miserable for the people around you. If you say that that my work or my pleasure or uh, my ideology or my sexuality, if we put any created thing in the place that is ultimate, then it's going to cause trouble downstream from there. So Paul says uh, one of the reasons that the law is good is because it gives us uh, instruction like that. What is what is the ultimate thing in our life? It should be not part of the creation. It should be God who is over and above creation. So, um, so one of the examples of the law is not to have any other gods before him. There's also practical things like um, you shall not murder. Um, and that seems reasonable. I don't want to get murdered. I'm guessing you don't want to get murdered either. But it goes beyond that. It's better than that because it, it says flatly, you shall not murder. It doesn't say you shall not murder except if you're rich and powerful. Then you can do what you want. And in the ancient world, that would have been an insight to say everybody should be equally protected from murder. And it's not something the king gets to do when he feels like it or when you're troublesome. It, it is a blanket prohibition on murder. So, so there are good things in the law that we can approve of. Um, we can even say they're glorious. And so Paul says, it's a good law. So what's wrong with the law? What's, what's wrong with the law if it's so good, if it's so glorious? Well, Paul says the problem is that it leads in death. It, it ends in death. It leads to death. Uh, what is wrong with this written law is that it leads to death. What does he mean by that? He means that the law establishes a target. It says, that's what God wants you to be like. That's what God wants you to do. But it doesn't give you any help hitting the target. That if you hit it, that's great. But do we? And Paul would have drawn on, on their reflection. They would have said, no, of course we don't do it. There's 613 commandments. And to be honest, 500 of them I have no trouble at all with. Okay, that last 100 I actually have to think about. And there's about a dozen that I really struggle with. And if I'm going to be honest, there's three that I just don't do. I, I try and on a good day, if the wind is at my back, I get that, that one, but, but you know what? No, I don't. And what Paul says is, well, we all know how this works, right? The fact that you got a 90% on, on, um, the commandments means you failed because there is no passing grade short of perfection. That God's requirement is perfection. Jesus goes on when, when he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says the same thing. He says, you've heard it said that, um, that you shall not murder, but, but I'm telling you, you should love your neighbor. He says, you should love your enemies. He says that the idea there is not simply don't murder, but actually to have a positive regard for, to have the best intention for the people around you. Jesus takes the law and says, says you've been seeing it as a limit, and what it should be seen is as a guide toward what God's intentions are. Um, uh, the same thing about uh, the, the law said, have no other gods before me, but but what that actually means is you should love the, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says, we don't succeed at the law. And because of that, because the standard is not, a, 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 you know, I got, you know, what is it, C's get degrees, right? Um, this is not like that, okay? This is not, you can, you can kind of fake your way through and, and eke out a passing grade because the only passing grade is perfection. And as a result of that, the law leads to death. It tells us what to aim at. 
but it doesn't help us hit the target. And in fact, the word sin literally means to miss the mark. It means to aim over there and not hit it. And that's what I think most of our experience is, is that we say, you know what, 613, I all but about three or four, yeah. But those three or four, you know, I'm just not there. So the law by itself leads to death. So what did Jesus do differently? What makes the gospel different from what Moses brought down from the mountain? Well, first of all, Jesus fulfilled the the um, the the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled it perfectly, and then he said to God, he said, "I'll take their punishment. You give them my fulfillment. You give them their my righteousness. I'm going to give it to them." So Jesus died on the cross to take away any punishment that we merit because of our inability to fulfill the, the old covenant. So for the first thing Jesus did is he took away the, the guilt that is associated with that sin, that, the guilt that is associated with, with missing the mark. That was the first thing he did. But then he inaugurated a new covenant. Paul reminds them that just as the, the glow on Moses' face was destined to fade away, so was the old covenant. He said it was destined to, to fade away. So Jesus inaugurates a new thing. So what is, what is this new thing? He says, if the old way which had been replaced was glorious, how much more is the new which remains forever? First of all, it's permanent. There, it's not going to fade away. But he says about it also, this is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. And he says, under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. What he says is that Jesus, having having freed us from our sin, Jesus then reconnects us to God. And there's different pictures in Scripture what that looks like. Sometimes he talks about we're like um, fruit growing on a tree, that the life of the tree is in us. Other times he talks about barriers being removed. But the idea is somehow we are reconnected to God. He says, I will send my spirit to live inside you. Okay, and the spirit will help you hit that target. But not the way we might think. Notice what Paul says. Paul doesn't say that the um, the Spirit, um, he says, uh, whenever when so- someone turns to the Lord, whenever someone becomes a part of Christ, the veil is taken away. But then what does he say? What does the Spirit actually do when the Spirit moves into your life? Does the Spirit hit, help you hit the target? No, he says the Spirit gives freedom. He says that freedom is what we get from the Spirit, not a better aim. So whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away for where the Lord is spirit, for the Lord is spirit and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, so why is that? What he says is that God doesn't simply adjust your aim. He doesn't say, well, you know, your problem is you've been kind of leaning off to one side. I'm going to fix that. He says, I'm going to change what kind of person you are. I'm going to change your ability to, to aim at that by changing who you are. He says, I'm going to actually um, give you freedom. So you're no longer, Paul uses another picture in a different, in a different gospel, uh, in a different letter. He says, he says, we have been like, we have been like children who are guardians, who have a guardian or a custodian, that the law was like that guardian. But he says, what the Holy Spirit does is actually mature us so we can actually want the, the, the thing that is over there. We want to hit that target as opposed to we've been told we must hit the target. He says we now have the freedom to operate the way Jesus did, where we're not constrained by a bunch of rules. We actually are the kind of people who naturally gravitate toward the good. So he says that's what the Spirit does. It sets us free. So how does this, how does this relate to the, the, 
transfiguration. What does this have to do with the transfiguration? Well, Paul says, all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. Remember, Paul began this passage by saying, by answering the objection, Paul, you're not like Moses. And my guess is you're probably not like Jesus, right? Is that you're not going to stand up and say to everybody, hey, look at me. If you want to see Jesus, I'm the closest living um, person you'll ever meet to look like Jesus. But what Paul says is you are becoming like Jesus. He says we reflect Jesus, that we see what Jesus is like. That's the spirit moving inside us and teaching us. But it's also a reflection. Paul says that we begin, um, as we are changed to be like him, um, we reflect the glory of God. He says, the Lord who is the Spirit make us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So, if you're, if you're saying to yourself, look, I don't want to be compared to Jesus. The people at my work would laugh at you if, if, if I said, um, if you told them that I was becoming like Jesus, they'd say, no, I've seen him. He's not that good of a coworker, right? <laughs> Paul is saying, Paul is saying, first of all, your vision may not be all that clear. Remember what a first century mirror was like. Pretty, pretty shabby things, right? You know, the, we, we have nice mirrors today. If you've ever seen like an antique mirror from back in the day, they're not all that impressive. So Paul understands any image that's in a, that's a reflection is going to be a pretty poor image. So he understands that. But he says, he says, nevertheless, you reflect Jesus. But there's, there's more to it than that because Paul is not simply talking to you and me. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He's saying, yeah, in fact, elsewhere in the letter, he says that one person who's doing this, you totally have to get them to stop, right? So Paul knows there are people in the church who are, who are difficult. What, what Paul is saying is that one of the ways we reflect Jesus is we love people who aren't very much like Jesus. That there's a corporate role here that we say, you know what? The people at work can tell you, you know, I am not very much like Jesus. On a, you know, on a good day with the wind at my back, I'm a little more like Jesus than, than other days. But there are days when I'm not. But there is a church, there's a community of faith where people love me because they know I'm not yet like Jesus. And so collectively, we are like Jesus when we love people who aren't like Jesus. The transfiguration is about what Jesus was really like. That for a moment, the, the scales fell and his disciples could see what he was really, really like. And what Paulus says is that we are becoming like him. We are beginning to be like Jesus. You are beginning to be like Jesus. Not because you have obeyed the law perfectly, but because the spirit of Jesus is moving inside you and changing you from the inside out. He's perfecting your aim, and he's perfecting what you want to aim at. But he's also working in us as a church to be people who love people who don't love Jesus. Let's be that kind of church, and let's be that kind of people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, the, the stories of the transfiguration raise so many questions. And there are so few answers. But Lord, we, we understand that someday we will see, we will see clearly. And in the meantime, we don't have to see. We simply have to, to trust that you are at work in us, that we are becoming more like you. And so Lord, we pray you would help us to lean into that. Help us not to try to, um, obey the law, but rather to be like Jesus. 
Because if we are like Jesus, we will obey the law. Lord, I pray for the ministry of this church that we can, um, where we each fail individually, we can collectively succeed at showing what Jesus is like in the world through our ministries and through our love for one another. I pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.